So about a year and some change ago, we started our high school ministry and junior high ministry, and it's been something that's been a blessing to the families as well uh, as the, the students that are a part of that. And Joe, Joe Bates started that ministry for us and has led it, and there's been a transition where Joe and his wife are continuing to be on staff and help disciple the high school students. And Will, who was on staff serving, is now our official high school and junior high director. So I'd love just to ask you a few questions for we can get to know you a little bit is give us your background, your background with just youth in general and uh, so that we can get to know you a little better. Some of you guys have probably seen Will before, maybe like reading scripture uh, 30 seconds ago, Um, or if you've been around First Wednesdays, you've heard him do some poetry and whatnot, whatnot, some spoken word, but tell us a little about yourself. Sure. Thank you. Um, I guess my experience starts when I was in college. I interned uh, for the youth group that I grew up in uh, every summer. Uh, also, while, while I was in college, we had a boarding school there for, uh, I went to school in Canada, and so parents would send their kids that were good hockey players, and I was the dean of the high school dorm. Um, after college, I went to work for the YMCA in Oakland, California. Um, I was a preschool teacher, uh, which was the best job I've ever had. I got to eat, like, goldfish crackers and stuff. Um, <clears throat> and I, I also ran uh, before and after school programs. Um, from there, I taught at a private Christian school. Um, I taught some missions classes, some high school English, um, and opened up another inner city tutoring center. Um, after that, my fiance at the time, wife now, and I moved out to Arizona where uh, we both work in behavioral health. I've worked on the Gila River um, Indian community. Uh, I've worked here in Mesa, Tempe, and Phoenix um, with youth with mental and behavioral health issues. Okay, so... I just found out just now that you lived in Canada. So with that experience of taking kids from Canada who go to, who go to Canada to play hockey and your inner city experience, given that we have both here hockey players and inner city kids, um, how do you relate, how do you, <laughs> how do you relate that with your experience to our high school kids? Uh, you know, one of the things that um, I learned throughout the years is one of my passions is um, bringing people to different experiences. Um, so while I was running an inner city tutoring center, I was taking my uh, privileged private school kids and they were, they were volunteering there. Um, I think there's a great, uh, one of the really good things in ministry is when we can learn from each other. We're ministering with people, not to people or for people. Um, and so that's one of the directions that we want to start heading this next school year is, is taking our solid group of, of um, junior and high, senior high school kids that we have now and, you know, encouraging them to uh, share their faith, get out into their communities and serve and, and bridge some of those gaps. That's really good. Tell us something that you would want us as a congregation to know about high school and junior high ministry that we probably wouldn't know. Um, that we exist. Uh, we, are, <laughs> we, we are kind of small. Uh, but in all seriousness, we have an amazingly solid core group of students. Um, you guys can be praying for them. They are... They are um, they're just, they're awesome. There's, there's not a lot of words to describe them. They know their word. They're excited um, for their faith. They're excited to share their faith with their friends. And, and we're really looking forward to see what God does through them. Okay. So last month, you guys got a chance to go to high school uh, and junior high summer camp in San Diego. Uh, just give us your takeaway from that as a ministry, from your leader's perspective, from your perspective, and just the camp as a whole. Uh, yeah, camp camp was great. Uh, I don't really think it could have gone any better. Um, camp was really um, 
it was really a catalyst for our students. Uh, most of our, almost all of our students made commitments to step up. They want to be leaders. They want to grow in their faith. We've had students, you know, report that they're reading their Bible every day because they want to get to know Jesus more. Uh, we've, I've had students text me and say, you know, this sin issue that I've been struggling with for months, I finally told my dad about it for some accountability. Things that I would never have done in high school, our high school kids are stepping up and, and assuming some leadership and um, some ownership over their faith. So it's been, it's just been so encouraging to see. Okay, so, uh, and we're going to do this all day long, is we want to pray. We want to pray for you all. Every time we bring someone on stage, we want to pray for them. What's something that we could be praying for you, specifically you and Aaron, your wife, and then also the ministry? Um, I, I think for us, assuming the leadership role, we realize what a responsibility it, it is. Um, parents are trusting us with their children. Uh, having a kid, I, I understand how weighty that is. And so we really just want to shepherd well. Um, we, we want to be a blessing to you guys um, as, as parents of junior and senior high school kids uh, and also to our community. So, so just for that guidance, um, that, yeah, that we would shepherd well. Good. Will you guys join me as we pray for, for Will in our high school ministry? Father, we thank you so much for the work that you have already begun and you've started, um, Lord, just in our, in our midst. And Father, we thank you for the junior high and high school students that we have here that are getting to know each other developing a relationship with you and growing in Christ. We pray for their parents, that you'd bless them and lead them and guide them, and that we'd see that our ministry is just a supplement to the responsibility and privilege that you've given them. God, I do thank you for Will and for Aaron and for Joe and Victoria, and Lord, for the entire staff that helps lead them, that you would anoint them with your spirit and your presence and guide them, Lord, that the ministry in itself was something that we would take the Bible very seriously. And God, live out the implications of the gospel in every area of life. And we pray that you'd raise up future men and women leaders in our congregation and throughout our city through this ministry. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You guys think we'll again? All right, let's jump into Romans. If you guys have your Bibles, why don't you meet me in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, that's going to be where we're going to be at this morning. Uh, Raise your hand really high if you do not have a Bible. Again, raise your hand high if you don't have a Bible, uh, and someone will be able to get you a copy of God's Word. Now, if you don't own a Bible, please keep the copy that is being handed out to you uh, so that you can have God's Word and you can grow in God's Word and, and grow in the knowledge of Christ um, we, we said this earlier, joking that the scripture that was read was, was um, probably not the most encouraging um, text. And so just a couple of disclaimers as we jump into this. This is easily uh, one of the hardest messages to hear um, because it's directly talking about you. And if you hear, okay, you meaning who, meaning you, it, it, it talks about every single person in this world. Therefore, every single person in this room. If, if you haven't been here with us, uh, David said earlier that we have been tracking through the book of Romans and it has been bad news, bad news, bad news. And this is the end of an argument that Paul has been making. And at the very end of the argument, Paul gets to the climax of this and it's, it's even worse than what it's been before. And I, I think just with our climate and our temperature, temperature this week, it's perfect timing because it's like super hot outside and it's going to be super hot here um, in the text. I mean, he uses words like your throat is like an open grave, their feet, they're swift, they shed blood, um, their lips are like apps. Like we don't even use that language, but... It's in the Bible, all right? And so that's what we're going to be looking at uh, today. So uh, three things that Paul points out in this, this text. One, he lets us know about our situation. And this is what he says. Our spiritual situation is all bad. Point number two, 
It's getting worse. And then point number three, there's nothing we can do about it. Hopefully you're not struggling with self-esteem today because today is not the message, right? It's, it's bad, it's, it's getting worse, and there's nothing you can do about it. Chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Um, growing up for me, and, and it's even still that experience now for me, is I learn a lot and am shaped a lot through just music. I love music, and, and I can develop concepts better through music. I can, I can memorize songs really well and words to songs. And, and for me, like, it was, it was shaping, and so I constantly watch music videos and listen to videos. And, and I grew up on ancient classic hip-hop, and so there was a lot of, uh, lot of songs that I listened to And believe it or not, and I say this somewhat reluctantly, that I believe that God began to use some of those songs to to save me, maybe, right? To maybe start asking questions about who he is and what my life is like. Here's what I mean. There was a TV show that came out in 2000. So throughout in college, I used to watch it. It was called 106 in Park. Um, It was on BET. And if you don't know what 106 in Park is or BET, don't even worry about it. (laughs) But, but, but on, this, on, on this, this TV show, um, they would have the top songs. And there was a band that, that, that popped into the top ten, um, and they were called Dilated Peoples. And they never made it bigger than this song. And this song was them featuring a guy who was his first time rapping in, in public. His name was Kanye West when he was called Kanye West. Now he's Jesus or something like that. But there, there, there was, there was a, in this song, it was called, I Can't Live My Life This Way. No, let me just bring you into this, right? I'm watching this, this video, and the video, it's showing guys who were saying, I can't get high anymore, and the smoke's chasing them, guys who are running away from, like, unpaid bills that they have, and finally that stops, and the whole video is just saying, I can't live my life this way anymore. And me and my buddies, as we sit on the couch watching this video, are like, gosh, that is so true. But for whatever reason, for me, I begin to ask more questions. I'm like, how can I get right? Like, how can I get right? And I think many of us have asked that question. How can I get right, whether it's to some higher being that we may believe in, or, or maybe it's just right before society, or even spiritually speaking, how can I get right before God? And then you try all these things to get right. For, for me, what would happen is I would go out on a Saturday night and wake up in the morning and, and show up to some random church around and, and just maybe something that the preacher would say, maybe a song that would be saying it would get me right. I began to try to clean up my language and not say some things I used to say to make myself right, but to to no avail. Like, there's nothing I was able to do to make myself right. And no matter how how, um, good I tried to be, what I realized is there's no good dude, right? When you're growing up, you want to be a good girl, you want to be a good guy, you want to be a good dude. And what Paul is saying and has been saying is there's no such thing as a good dude and you can't get right. There's there's no such thing as a good dude, spiritually speaking, vertically speaking, between you and God. And there's nothing you can do to get yourself right. You could be the most sweetest, you could be the sweetest person in the world. You could be the best person in the world. You can be morally upright. You can know all the scriptures. And Paul says, that does not make you right. And I hope I'm speaking to somebody here. Because Paul is saying, this is not just one person's issue. What he unpacks here and what he's been unpacking is that this is everybody's issue. 
And, and it gives our situation, it says, it is all bad, it's getting worse, and there's nothing you can do about it. In verse 9, he asks the question, what then? Are we Jews any better off? This is after a series of questions of which Paul has been asking. And it's called the diatribe, meaning tribe, when someone's talking to someone and he's, what he's doing is anticipating questions people would ask. And last week when Jim came and taught, the question was, do we have any advantage of a Jew? And he goes, yeah, you have an advantage. Meaning you've been given the word of God, the oracles of God, and that's what Jim came and he talked about last week. That many of us grew up in Christian families where our mothers and our fathers, they taught us the scripture, they pointed to Christ. But what Paul is saying is that even though that's an advantage, it doesn't make you right before God. Just being raised in a Christian home doesn't get you right before God. Some of us were raised in a Christian home, and we couldn't wait to get out of that Christian home to do what we wanted to do, right? And, and, and Paul is saying, no, the answer is no. You don't have it any better off. He's saying vertically, meaning you, the Gentile, the person raised in church, the person not raised in church, the person who knows really good theology, the person who's never picked up the Bible, you are all in the same boat. It says that we are all under sin, Paul says in verse 9, that Jews and Greeks are under sin. That language there, being under something, means under the authority, under the reign. We are enslaved to sin. Our issues is not that, that we sin, but that we are sinners. It is in us. And because it's in us, we don't have the ability to reach out to a holy God. And Paul, that's why Paul jumps in and quotes now when he says, as it is written. And he begins to take six quotes from six different verses in the Old Testament. And he strings them together to try to communicate the point. You can't get right. You can't do it. First thing he says here in verse 10, it says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. He says, none is righteous. And he says, what do you mean by none is righteous? I know some people who live right. Here's what Paul is talking about here. We, we, we understand this. Paul is not talking so much about dignity as he is ability. Because it's easy for us to read this text and go, no one understands. No one seeks after God. We become worthless and they go, gosh, what's wrong with these guys? Like God doesn't care about people? No, he does. Paul is not talking about dignity and value, but he's talking about ability. Let me give you some terms here that will be helpful. First is the teaching of Imago Dei. Imago Dei is a Latin phrase that means creating the image of God. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says that God created them both, male and female, after his image. Meaning, because we are created in the image of God, we are created for relationship. We are created to worship God. We are created to, to know and to be known, to love and to be loved. That we are created for intimacy with God, to worship him. And our value is because he created us. But something has happened. That when Adam and Eve, our first father and mother, when they sinned against God, sin entered in this world, and it's in every single person. It's an effect, and it's affected every single person. So though the Mago Dei is still there, it's been tainted. And when Paul comes and he says, none, none is righteous, no, not one, he says the situation's all bad. Because the next concept is that of depravity. And there's a teaching called total depravity. It's what theologians would call total depravity. And, and for us to be able to understand this text and understand that doctrine, uh, we have to understand that total depravity is not the same thing as utter depravity. And I'm going to explain these terms. Utter depravity, 
It's when people say that we, because of sin, are as bad as we can be. And only in Christ can we not be as bad as we can be. And so the logic of that is saying that if you are um, not a Christian, that means you are as bad as you can be. Um, And that means those of us who are Christian, we need to stay away from you guys. Because if you are not a Christian, that means you're crazy and you're going to do really, really bad things. And if they're, if they're really that bad, then the advice that we should have as Christians is hide your kids, hide your wives, and your husbands. Because they're killing everybody up here, right? <laughs> like, that, that Bible doesn't teach that. <laughs> the Bible does not teach utter depravity. We know we're not as bad as we could be. We know that our friends who are not Christian are not as bad as they, no one's as bad as they can be. I mean, even just look at the people who you say, that dude's bad, right? You look at Hitler and you go, didn't kill his mom, could have been worse, right? Could have been worse, could have been worse. So utter depravity, we say, no, the Bible does not teach that. But total depravity, which may not even be the best word, a better word would be total corruption. And what that means is sin has affected every area of us, our intellect, our mind, our will, every capacity, physically, biologically, it's affected us. It hasn't completely um, annihilated us. We're still humans. We're still personality. We're still creating God's image. But it's affected us. It's tainted us. Therefore, when it comes to a relationship with God, when it says none is righteous, what Paul is saying, this is how bad it is. Um, Not on a horizontal level, but on a vertical level, that you, giving 10 out of 10 times, you would never choose or reach out to a holy God unless he sovereignly intervenes. Paul has been making this point, right? I mean, let me just just step back a little bit. Chapter 1, verse 18. He says, those who do not believe in God, they have suppressed the truth. And God's wrath is being revealed upon them. He said the worst thing that God can do is let them be who they would normally be apart from him. Meaning they would not choose him. And then you go, well, that's good. Those are people who are non-church type people. And then he goes, wait a minute, chapter 2. He says religious people, church type people. Though you have the Bible... Though you have some understanding, he goes, you too are in the same position. You are not resting and trusting in God. You're actually resting and trusting in your own righteousness. You're resting and trusting in your ability to read and to pray and to fix yourself and to get right. And he goes, that looks really good, but vertically, it means nothing. It does not earn a relationship with God. So Paul says, depravity is what it is. None is righteous. He goes, no, not one. In Ephesians 2, he uses the language of dead. He says that we are dead in our sins and we are dead in our trespasses. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says that the heart is wicked beyond all belief. It's it's deceitful. And it's saying, meaning we don't naturally want God. We, We naturally are not looking for God. That we will naturally be sinners. We are naughty by nature. It's another music reference. That, 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 that's, that's, who, that's who we are. I mean, just think about it on a practical level. You don't have to teach kids, listen, um, this is how you not share, right? I know, stop sh- I know you're sharing, but this is how you not share. Can you not share with your brother, please? Right? We don't have to teach them that. It's just natural. It's natural. It says no one is righteous. No, not one. Paul continues here. He talks about our situation, how bad it is. He says no one understands and no one seeks for God. Like you read that and you go, really, no one seeks for God, Paul? I mean, I know people who seek for God. Some of you this morning are saying, I'm here because I'm seeking for God. I, I, I want to know things about God. So what is he talking about? I'm not seeking God. I'm always seeking God. Um, here's what he's saying. 
we will naturally seek God. Um, excuse me. We'll seek benefits from God, right? Like, man, I got this guilt. Better go to church. Uh, I'm scared. Better go to church. I'm hungry. Better go to church. I don't know, right? It's like we want forgiveness from God. We want healings from God. We want blessings from God. We, we want these things. And so, but we don't always want God. In essence, we're using him. And some of us have been used by people before, right? And some of us, we know people or friends. We see the relationship and we go, man, he's using her. He only wants her for her money. And you know what that's like. When Holly first started dating me, I had to ask her, is it my money? <laughs> If you guys only knew me, <laughs> right? But like, you know, we use, we use God. We don't seek him on his turn to say we just love him. Um, he's saying this is, this is vertically speaking. Like, I, I want to be sensitive, right? I do think there are people who are asking good questions. I do think there are people who, like I was on that couch watching that video going like, what, how do I get right with God? I'm not saying those words don't come out. Paul is talking about what is happening behind the scenes, He's not just talking externally. He's saying, what is happening behind the scenes? Like, you are naturally not looking to just follow God and to know him. Their situation is bad. Listen, there, there are no good dudes, and you can't get right. Paul continues here. He says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, and no one does good, not even one. Again, you go, dang, Paul. Worthless? <laughs> like, are you saying people are worthless? No. Back to a Mago day. Um. You are not worthless. You have value. You have dignity because you are created in the image of God. You say, well, Paul just said I'm worthless. Here's what Paul is saying. When Paul uses the word worthless, it is, it is likened to spoiled milk. And if you think about spoiled milk, if you've ever gone in that refrigerator and you open that milk, right? What do you, what do, you do? If you're in college, you put it back in there. <laughs> if you're grown, you take it out. And you drink a little bit, then you, put it on. <laughs> you pour it out. You go, it's not, it's not going to be used for the purpose that it's supposed to be for. It's not used for the right purpose. And so you and I, get this, you and I created. God created us not to, to be judged. He didn't create us for wrath. God created us after his image to love him. Sin has separated us from God. The, the issue is sin is the one that has taken over. We are under sin. And now sin has corrupted us. And so our lives are spoiled in the purpose of which we were made to glorify God. We don't do that. What we've done, as Paul said in Romans 1, is we take the things that God has created and we worship those things instead of using relationships and things that we see and we touch, touch and we taste, using those things to worship God. And so when he says worthless, he's not talking about you and your value, but he's, he's talking far more, uh, less form and more about purpose, right? Form is how something is done and then there's purpose of what it's used for. In the same way when he says that you become worthless, he says that no one does good. And again, objection. We know people who do good all the time. We do. We know people who do not love Jesus, who do really good things. They're in our family. Um, they, they're our neighbors. They're our coworkers. Like some of our best friends are people who don't believe in Jesus that we trust with our kids. And, and it's, it's amazing. So how could we say that it's not good? Well, we're talking, again, on a horizontal level. Like, they're good in our sense, but not in a vertical holiness way. The way to illustrate this is, is if you've grown up and you've had a good friend, like, a, you know, your boy, it's just my boy, he's a good dude, right? You like him, you guys have been friends for a while, and you grow up, and all of a sudden he comes to you, and he, you, you would tell everybody, he's a good dude, he's a good dude. And he says, hey, man, can I date your sister? 
And you're like, heck no, right? No, well, I thought I was a good dude. No, no, that's totally different. Like, we could be friends, but you will never date my sister, right? That happens all the time to people. In fact, I love it when I, I did a wedding a few weeks ago, or about a month ago, where the couple, they, um, the, the guy knew uh, the, his wife's brother, took him home, right? Came home with them. The sister was in high school, and now they're married. And I'm thinking, yeah, imagine how that went out. Like, I bring my boy home to meet my family and marries my sister a few years later, right? You don't usually like that, right? No one's like, I want my best friend to marry my sister. Why? Because you know your best friend. <laughs> you know what he's like. <laughs> and you're like, no, 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 not my sister. Well, in and, and the same way, God's like, I know you. I know you. I know the deepest parts of you. And I know what you're really like. Check it. You can put on a front for everybody else, but God's like, you can't put on a front. I, I know. And you don't have righteousness. You don't have righteousness to make yourself right with him. And so when he's talking about no one does good, he's saying people do good things. But the purpose, again, it's not the form, what they do, but it's, it's the purpose of it. If your good deeds that you're doing is to merit a relationship with God, he's not impressed. He's not impressed. Because you, you can do all of the right religious things. You can check all types of religious boxes. You can show up to all types of services. You, you could do all types of good works and good humanitarian things, which are good, by the way. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do those things. But if you're doing those things to, for, so for God to go, now come into my kingdom, he goes, you've missed the point. You missed the point. It, you, you don't have an ability to reach out to God. That, that's, that's Paul's first point. No one's righteous. The situation is all bad. Now, we could stop there, but that wouldn't be good news. But Paul doesn't stop there. In fact, he goes even further and he goes, okay, not only is your situation bad vertically, not only has sin affected your heart that you cannot reach out to God, but now he says it's even worse than you thought. Like it's getting worse. I mean, it gets affected your entire body. Um, Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says this. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of apps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and, curse, curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. It's like, all right, Paul, uncle, right? Like, he's saying, like, he gives some, like, vivid pictures. I think what Paul is doing right now is he's saying, listen, sin in itself, it's full body. Because he used some things here. He says uh, um, words like tongue and throat and lips and feet and mouth. He's just saying it's affected all of you. It's getting worse. Meaning it starts in the heart, but it expresses itself. And you know where sin expresses itself the most? In the mouth. In the mouth. The things that you say. It's why Jesus says out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I would say acts. And it does. It comes from within. We, we like to say, this person made me do it, or, or Satan made me do it, or, you know, something like, no, you did it because it was who you are. People might have provided the right context, but you, you lived out of who you are. And Paul is saying, that's, that's the picture he's painting. Like, it's bad, but it's also getting worse. It's spreading. It has spread. It's tainted all of you. And the picture that he gives is just an eerie picture. Like, when he starts off here in verse 13, and he says, their throat is an open grave, like, that to me is kind of like, ah, did you have to go there? Like, I don't know. I mean, because I don't know how you guys' stories. I don't know if you've ever been in a grave before but, um, or dug a grave. Anyone? I've actually dug a grave before. Like, in a good, I mean, like, it wasn't like I was in trouble or anything. Like, no confessions right now or anything, right? 
I was on a missions trip, short-term missions trip in Coborca, Mexico. And this trip had nothing to do with digging graves. We're in this uh, pretty poor community, staying with the members of this church. And one of the members uh, died, and they needed someone to help her sons um, dig her grave. Because in Mexico, they, they bury them a lot faster. And so they're like, yeah, who wants to do it? And I'm like, that's the last thing I want to do is dig a grave. I'm like, hey, Ricardo. And I was like, yeah, no English, no Spanish. <laughs> but in an accent, which is weird. Um, I like, why, 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 why don't you come help? And so we're digging this grave. And guys, I'm just telling you, there's nothing more eerie than, than, than this experience of like digging this grave. And then there comes a point where you're so deep that the only way you can get out of the grave is if someone pulls you out. Now, you know, the purpose of a grave is to dig it, put one body in there, and then cover it. What Paul is saying here is, like, our sin is wide open, and it invites everybody else into it. It is an open grave. He's saying, it is very dangerous. That not only vertically can we not get right with God, uh, not, not, not only vertically, but even every part of us is tainted, meaning our lips, our tongues, our mouths, some of the worst things comes out of it. Whether you're an irreligious person and you don't believe in God or you're a religious person and you want to follow the, the, the law of God. He's saying, just think about the way you slander. Just think about the way that you gossip. Just think about the way that you treat people behind their back. Just think about the things you've said in the last week, all of us. Just think about the way that you use your lips. Paul says it's gross. It's dark. It, 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 and it's affecting all of you, every single part of you. Paul, Paul, Paul says that it's getting worse. Now, Verse 18 will give you the, the, the crescendo of it all. Verse 18 says this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Here, here's, here's what he's saying. Um, the reason why we don't worship God, the reason why it's bad, the reason why it's getting worse is that there's no fear of God. Now, we got to understand the fear of God here. Um, some of us, when we hear the fear of God, we think of the angry dad that we're just trying not to make mad so that he doesn't come after us. And we think that's what our life is about. Some of you, sadly, you view Christianity as like, whatever I do, I just don't want to upset God. I want God to be mad at me. I don't want to do something that's going to um, upset him because he's going to come after me. But on the flip side, there's a pendulum that some of you guys view God as going, you know, he's kind of like the, the enabling mom who just, uh, just lets you do whatever you want to do. I mean, you can, can continue to just do what you want to do, and she's going to accept you in and kind of, you know, pay your habits and whatnot. And, and the Bible gives us none of that. Um, what Paul is saying is, if, if there was a fear of God, it's, it's, what, it's what Solomon says when it's the beginning of wisdom. And the fear of God is prompted, is motivated in understanding um, what David read earlier from Psalm 30, looking at the scripture and saying that we understand that if God counted iniquity, man, we would just be wiped out, but he grants forgiveness. What, what, what he's saying is if we, if we actually got the gospel, there, there would be hope, but most of us reject it because we cannot naturally in our own state reach up to God. And so, so it's bad. It, it's getting worse. It gives the picture of the grave. We're, we're all in it. And then he says, there's nothing we could do about it. Verses 19 and 20. Paul says, now that we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Here's what he's saying. The, the picture here is of a courtroom. And he says, Paul has been walking through verse after verse after verse to get to this point. And he says, listen, now we know that everyone who's under the law, 
Now, primarily he's talking to Jewish people, but saying everyone in general. He says that if you're under the law, that you have to live up to the law. And what Paul has been saying is no one can live up to this law. And so the picture of the courtroom is us standing before God, the just judge. And we can say, hey, I've done this, I've done this, I've done, and God's going to give us evidence in our own life of his holiness and our sinfulness that would make all of our mouths shut up. They will all be stopped. And there's something else here that's weighty there when it says that we're all accountable. I mean, that we are accountable for every single thing that we've done. We're accountable to what we've done with an understanding of Christ. We're accountable to every action that we've made. Paul has already said, even the Gentiles who do not have the law, that they have your, their conscience and your conscience has, has convicted you. This is the reason why I watched that video and thought, that's right, I can't live my life this way. I'm accountable to those things. You are accountable to those things. He goes, and in, in that day, it's like a courtroom where there's complete evidence against you that you can't say anything. He goes, everyone's mouth will be stopped. And, and then he talks to the Jews as if somehow the, their law could have saved them. Somehow, even though God's law was perfect, it could not save them. It says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Meaning the law had a purpose. The law worked as a mirror, that it showed you who you were. And all of us have looked in the mirror, and we've seen things in the mirror in our face, right? We can see, like, whether there's food on our face or whatever it may be. I had this awkward experience the other day when I was eating. I turned around, and there's a lady eating behind me, and she had her iPhone, and you can press the camera where it turns backwards. And the whole time, she was using the phone like a mirror, and she's getting all this stuff out of her, out of her tooth. And, all this, and I'm, like, looking, and then she sees me looking at her. And I'm like, oh, shoot. <laughs> like, it's, it was just this weird experience. When you look at a mirror, you can see everything that's wrong with you, but the mirror in itself can't fix you. The mirror can only point out the obvious. What Paul has been trying to say, and what the law has been, has been saying, what your conscience has, has been doing, is pointing out the obvious. And that is that you have a sin problem. I have a sin problem. And every single, we, every single person we know has a sin problem. And there's nothing we can do to rid ourselves of this problem. No matter what we do, we cannot make ourselves right. And so, again, vertically speaking, there are no good dudes. And we can't get right. And you say, well, gosh, that seems terribly uh, hopeless. And I seem, I mean, it seemed like we would be helpless. If you feel helpless, that's exactly where Paul wants us to get. He wants to get us to this point. Because the gospel in itself is always bad news first and then good news. The bad news is our situation that we understand that we now, because of our sin, we sit rightly under the wrath of God and under the judgment of God, and there is nothing we can do about it and enter in Christ. The way that we can understand the gospel is understanding what Christ and the length of which Christ and the depth of which Christ traveled that we would be his people. And so this message is never at all to say, this actually just stripped away my value, your value, your value is all about how much somebody would pay for you. Your value is almost the length in which God would go to redeem you. And when you understand the depths of your sin and the height of his holiness, now the cross in itself is fit in the right place. It never becomes trivial. It becomes something that is amazing. It's why we say grace is amazing to think that God himself would save a wretch like me. It's the picture that Paul's been trying to get to. is to see us that we need help from outside of ourselves. It's not going to come in. That Paul, Paul is like a physician that comes in and looks at our situation, allows the Bible to look at our situation and go, this is bad. 
and there's nothing you can do about it, but only God can come in and redeem. The, the best way to communicate this is when we see our guilt and our need of a Savior and what Christ has done. Um, uh, there's one author, I think, gets this really well, and I don't like normally introducing you guys to new authors, but there's this guy, C.S. Lewis, and um, <laughs> I've been telling you I've been reading The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and we finally finished it, my son and I, and it's, it's beautiful, one, it's beautiful. But what, what C.S. Lewis does here is the very end of the, uh, very end of the book, and if you haven't read the book, it's been around for 50-something years, so it's your fault. And so in the, very, in the very end of the book, you have the witch, and the witch wants to take Edmund because Edmund's a traitor. And she goes to Aslan, and, and who's like the Christ figure, and she goes, Aslan, you know, the, you, know, you know the deep magic. Like there's a deep magic, and if there's a traitor, he belongs to me, meaning he has to be under me, and he, he, I get to take his life. And in the same way, we are all traitors by sin and we were under sin. It's exactly what Paul is communicating here. And that we understand the judgment that we, that we in ourselves, because of our sin, we are traitors. We traded, we traded ourselves against God. We, we are traitors against even our own self and who we are. And so we are worthy of God's wrath and God's judgment. And, and, and the witch says, that's the deep magic. It's the way that it is. It's the way that it's written. And then, then Aslan goes and he talks to her and he, and he says, look, let me take his place. And he puts himself there and he dies. And then Lucy and Susan, they weep, and Aslan's dead. And then all of a sudden, they, they hear the rock crack, the rock in which he was, he was, uh, he was, he was killed on. And he's, he's alive now, and then now there's joy, and then they don't really know what's going on. I'm going to read it for you. And it says this, like, they're all like, what does it mean? Like, what does all this mean now that you're alive? And it means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read their different incantation. She would have had known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. When you're, when you're able to see Excuse me. When you're able to see the height of God's holiness and the death of your sinfulness, the cross becomes transforming. Like I said before, grace in itself truly becomes amazing. And a life lived with Christ becomes all-sufficient. You realize that you, as Tim Keller would say, were more wicked and flawed than you ever dare believe, but at the same time were loved and accepted than you can ever dare hope. But the gospel in itself truly becomes good news that you realize God has begun something in you that he will never take away, and that the death that you had, that you were completely dead, that he has now given you a new life. And he didn't just make you better, that he made you new, that the old you is dead and that the new you has come, and this is all through the work of Christ. Paul has been setting us up for the rest of Romans in which we ourselves can live in and through the good news of Jesus, the grace of God, of which we had nothing to, to, to we had everything to lose and then all to gain in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray.